The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. As we begin tonight, as we're wrapping up our code series and and we're in pursuit of trying to understand who are the mystery, this, this Christmas mystery. It has captured the imagination of Christians from the very beginning for thousands of years. And so where we're gonna begin um, today is I've gotta take you with me to a town in Germany called Regensburg. And this is a picturesque town situated right on the Danube. And throughout these these winding uh, streets of this city, this beautiful city, what's significant about this city is this is where the famous scientist, Johannes Kepler, one of the fathers of modern astronomy, incredible mathematician. This is the town where he spent his final days. In fact, there is one particular house that they know was the house where he eventually died in, and they've turned it into a museum. And what they've done since then, they've, they've made some of it, they've preserved it, but since then, they've turned it into a virtual experience, and they've had uh, designers come in and virtually recreate what that house may have looked like when Kepler was living there in the early 17th century, in the 1600s. And so I want you to go into those rooms, go back with me to the 1600s, and imagine that you're sitting there with this famous scientist Kepler in his final days. Because what Kepler discovered, he discovered using mathematics, he discovered the mathematical rhythm of the orbit of the planets. In other words, ever since Kepler, we've known mathematically how to predict where the planets are in the sky. Now here's why that is such a big deal. The ancients, going back thousands of years, they had watched the sky. Now they didn't have the light pollution that we had so they could see tons of stars. They could see all of the constellations and they saw how they moved across the sky very predictably. But some of the stars in the sky, they called wanderers. And that that Greek word for wanderer is where we get our English word planet. Because some of the, the stars in the sky, they moved very erratically and these ancient astrologers would look up at the sky and see where these wanderer, wanderer stars, where these planets were in relation to some of the other celestial bodies, some of the other constellations. And so while they saw the pattern, it just seemed like all the planets were very erratic until Kepler. Kepler figured out the mathematics of how all of the planets were orbiting, orbiting the, the sun. And so what that means, since Kepler in the 1600s, scientists can predict where the planets will be in the sky. Now here's the thing that's interesting about Kepler. He was also a Christian. And so once he dialed in that math, those math, mathematics, he asked himself a question, wait a minute, If we can roll the skies forward, then that means we can also roll the sky backward. And being a Christian, that got him interested. And what he wanted to see is, that means we can know what the night sky looked like back at the time that Jesus was born. Now, here's a couple things before we go into this. Now, I don't know about you, but man, one of the things I wanna know when it comes to the Magi is, Man, what did they see in the sky? What was it? 
You know, maybe it was a miracle. I mean, God could do that. I mean, if there's a God, then he could just disrupt his own natural order and just say, yeah, I'm going to put a star in the sky. It's going to lead the Magi. And some people think that. Others think, well, maybe it was an angel, but they called it a star. Maybe it was something like that. But what I want to know is, did something happen in the night sky that could have, that we can actually look back and see, or we can look back at historical record or just scientific models and see what did the skies look like? Look like? Well, Kepler wanted to do that as well. And so what I want to do is I want to kick off this time together. I want to show you what scientists and historians have, have looked at. I want to show you the three most intriguing options for what that star could have been. And here's why I think that's important, because maybe you're one of those people that's like, look, it's tough for me to believe the Bible, because it's got such crazy things in it. Like, for example, a star that lead wise men uh, across the desert to baby Jesus. I mean, that to me, it's just too crazy to believe. But I want you to see what the night sky held. Now, they knew a period of time to look. And you might say, well, it doesn't, didn't Je wasn't Jesus born on 1 AD? I thought that's when he was born. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. That was a monk a couple hundred years after Jesus that tried to put together history and lay it out according to the life of Jesus. And by the way, he did a remarkable job trying to figure that out. But uh, historians and even biblical scholars would say, as incredible as he did, he was a little bit off. We now have a more complete historical record. And so we know that Jesus was probably born somewhere between 2 B.C., to maybe seven or eight BC. Some would even narrow it to four to eight BC, but that's the window that we can look, and we know that the wise men came from the east. So here are the three most intriguing, I think, theories. And the first one was the theory Kepler himself thought of and what he discovered in the night sky. He rolled it all the way back and started looking, and he found something remarkable in 7 BC, something that only would happen every eight to 900 years. If you were an ancient astronomer, if you were uh, an ancient astrologer, ma a magi, a wise man, and you studied the skies, when you saw this in 7 BC, as many would have, they would have known this was very, very rare. Here's what they saw in the sky. We're going to uh, simulate it for you. They saw that Jupiter and Saturn came in very close contact with, e with each other, very close, not just once, but over the next months and weeks, twice, and then a third time they passed each other. And that's extremely rare. It's not uncommon for them to come by each other uh, just once, but three times in a man of a couple months would have been rare. And it all happened in the constellation Pisces. Now, I want to remind you, I don't know if you guys saw it last year. Do you remember seeing in the night sky, Jupiter and Saturn got really close in the sky last year? Does anybody remember that? Anybody? A couple of you? There's like 10 of you that saw that, okay? They said on the news, we'd never see it again in our lifetime, okay? And only 10 of you saw it. Okay, I saw it. Some of you saw it. It was incredible. But imagine that they took three passes. That only ha happens every couple hundred years. And when they saw that, and they saw that it was in the constellation Pisces, what some historians have looked at is these ancient, some ancient astronomers, astrologers, associated that particular constel constellation with Israel. So they're looking as this king planet comes in close, uh, close connection with Saturn three times that some kind of ultimate king was coming to Israel. Now here's what's interesting. Since the time of Kepler, archaeologists have discovered ancient Babylonian tablets where they keep a diary 
of what they're seeing in the stars. And this one is from about 5 BC. And on this tablet at the British Museum, Babylonian astrologers documented that exact thing that happened in 7 BC, the triple conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter in the constellation Pisces. So here's what we know. People looking at the sky in Babylon saw it. That's option number one. Option number two comes from, of all the ancients that kept the most meticulous record, the Chinese astrologers that looked at the sky kept unbelievable records. And here's an example of that on Silk. This is them talking about comets that they saw in the sky. And they actually documented Halley's Comet in 12 BC. But there's another interesting and intriguing uh, a star that they saw in the sky. But they used the same word that they used for comet. That was in 5 BC. Now, modern scientists don't know what it is that they saw or what comet they saw. But they wrote down in 5 BC that they saw a comet. So we know it was there. Now, the challenging thing is about a comet. We can't just use math and recreate the sky. But we know it happened in 5 BC. And here's what's interesting about a, a comet. Um, look at this picture of a comet. If you know about a comet, it has a tail, right? And so one of the things that the Bible says about the star that these wise men saw is that it came to rest right over the top of where Jesus was. Now, that could mean Bethlehem, but some have taken that to mean the actual house where Jesus was. And with the, it's hard to say that about a star, but with a comet, you could almost see why it's pointing to an exact place on the horizon. Option number two is a comet. Very possible. Option number three this happened in 2 BC, and there's a man by the name of Rick Larson that came up with this theory. And he, I'm going to give you some homework. I want you to, when you leave here uh, today, maybe you're going to talk about, hey, which theory did you think was right? And these are just three of, of several, but I think they're the most intriguing. But here's your homework. A guy by the name of Rick Larson, he did a documentary called The Star of Bethlehem. You can go to Bethlehem Star. Uh, com. And I want to challenge you to watch this in the next couple days with your family. It is an incredible documentary. It's so interesting, so deep. I'm just going to scratch the surface. But what he did is he took the software based on the mathematics that Kepler discovered, and he rolled back the night sky, and in 2 BC, he saw two things that happened. First, there is one star that came up in the east called Regulus, and that star is known as the King Star. And it had a close conjunction with the king planet, um, Jupiter. And they came in conjunction to each other three times. So you have this kind of ultimate king thing happening. But what's especially interesting is that it all happened within the constellation Leo. And so we're trying to figure out how would these, these magi know that there is a king born um, and come to Judea? Well, if you remember biblically, the sign of Judah is the lion, the lion of Judah. And if they're looking in the, in the skies, maybe that's what they saw. Here's a simulation of what they saw of Regulus rising, and then Jupiter goes down past it, comes up again, and it's all, and passes it, gonna pass it three times, all in the constellation Leo. But what's interesting is about nine to 10 months later, another thing happened. The two brightest stars in the sky, Jupiter and Venus, came so close together that they became like one extremely bright light. 
Now this has been documented. This for sure happened in 2 BC. That means all of the cultures looking at the sky in 2 BC, they would have seen this incredibly bright light. It would have been the brightest star anyone had ever seen in the sky for generations. And what Rick Larson supposes is uh, that at the time of the, the king arrived on the scene, at his conception, when baby Jesus is, is in Mary, there's a triple conjunction of the king planet and the king star. And then nine to ten months later at his birth, the brightest star that anyone had ever seen in the sky appears. And they began to ride to Jerusalem. Now there's so much more in there, but I'm going to leave you, leave you with one last thought on this, on this whole idea of the uh, astronomy. Where Rick Larson ends, and this is part of the reason I want you to go watch this documentary. As he says, look, if we could roll it back to the time of Jesus' birth, what if we rolled it forward to the time of Jesus' death? Because there's a prophecy in Joel that the moon would turn to blood. And Peter himself references that at Pentecost, a few weeks after Jesus died and rose again. And he said, so what, what would I be looking at? And he starts thinking about it. He's like, well, there's only a few Passovers it could be. He finds the Passover that most lines up with, with the biblical data, and he looks at that Passover, and, um, you know, moon turned to blood. What is he looking for? A blood moon. You've seen a blood moon. Here's a picture of a blood moon. We had a couple of these recently. And what did he find? On April 3rd, 33 AD, a blood moon rose in view of Jerusalem. Now, here's what I'm suggesting to you. Maybe you've wondered, yeah, what could the, the star be? Or, man, that star part, that just seems so crazy. I'm not sure I could believe that. Here's the thing. The star is not the crazy part of the story. There's all kinds of things the star could be. There's even more theories. I didn't even share with you uh, half the theories. There's some more theories that would blow your mind on what it could have been just in those few tight years. Tons of data on what the star could be. I don't think that's the big question. I think what the big question is, no matter what they saw in the sky, why did they go? Why didn't they see a star and be like, oh, check it out, super king, he's born over in Judea, that's awesome, high five, go tell our king, watch out, super king is coming, on to the next you know, thing. Like, Why did they're like, oh, and we should go? We should go take months out of our time, spend a fortune, leave another fortune with, with this king. Why did they think they should go? It's because I think they had more than just the night sky to go off of. I think they had a text. And what they saw in the text is something they said, we cannot miss this. If you're just joining us, um, we've been doing um, a study on trying to figure out who were these magi and... It's gotten a little crazy up here, okay? Like, I can't re-go through all of this for you. That would take too much time. But let me just give you the basics if you're just joining us. We know from the book of Matthew where this story is recorded. They weren't three kings. There's a technical term used, magi. That's where that word comes from, the Greek word magoi. This is a guild of astrologers in the east, in the Babylonian Persian Empire and into Jesus' day. They would look to the heavens trying to find signs. So we know that that's who came. Now, um, we, what we're taking off of this is there's actually a place in the Bible where magi are mentioned by name in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Daniel. And we know that this guy that you've heard of, Daniel and Daniel in the lion's den, that Daniel 
when God's people were brought out of Jerusalem after Babylon conquered it and they're in exile, this Daniel was a Jewish boy and he and his friends were sent to Nebuchadnezzar's palace. They were trained to become magi. Daniel became a magi. As, as you go through the book of Daniel, you see he became a magi, became the chief magi, and as the generations passed, he became a legendary chief magi and wrote down the incredible things that God showed him in a very strategic point in history in the book of Daniel. So it's safe to assume a few generations later, 500 years later, the men from the same guild of Magi would have known and had the writings. They were very educated men. They would have had the writings of this famous chief Magi who was a legend. And so they, as they look through that, what would they have learned? They would have had this text. They know from Daniel 2 to be watching for a king an ultimate king, a king far greater than the King Nebuchadnezzar, a, an ultimate king who would establish a kingdom that would extend to the ends of the earth and would last forever. They knew this really significant king would come, so they brought gold, which if you're studying Daniel 2 and 3, is the perfect thing to signify that ultimate king. But then we go to Daniel chapter 7, and what it, how it describes this coming king is it says, a son of man coming on the clouds. In other words, a human, but also God, a God-man. And it says that this king is not just setting up a kingdom that he's going to pass on to future generations. He will reign forever. It is the God-man king. He's God, so they worshipped him, and they brought him incense. They brought him frankincense, which is the perfect emblem of worship. But that still leaves us with several things that we haven't figured out. When he, they're talking to Herod, the idea of a Christ, Herod says, well, asks his scribes, hey, where is this Christ that's to be born? And where did this idea, Herod was certainly not waiting and looking for the Christ. He tried to kill the Christ. So where did that enter in on the conversation? And especially this idea of myrrh. You know, gold is a great gift for a king, Frankincense would be a not unexpected gift to an ancient king, but myrrh, that is not a gift you give to a king. Here's what myrrh was used for, embalming. So you know how in the book of Daniel, maybe if you've come across this or you've seen other ancient texts, they would go before a king and they would say, oh king, live forever. If you're going to show up before a king, you don't say, hey, I thought this would be a good moment to just remind you, you're going to die one day, you're probably going to need this myrrh. Just thought I'd just remind you that you're mortal and you're not going to live all the time, okay? Not going to make you very popular with that king. You would never bring myrrh. Let's not suggest to this king who could just put you to death because he feels like it, that he's going to die. Why in the world would they bring myrrh? Well, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the last text that they had. They would have had Daniel chapter 9. And if you have a Bible or Bible app, I want you to go to Daniel chapter 9 with me. And I want you to see what this text says. Because honestly, this is pretty amazing to imagine that they had this. Daniel chapter 9. We're just going to look at a couple verses here. Picking it up in verse 24. Here's what it says. This is a, a vision, a, a prophecy that Daniel receives. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city 
to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and mode, but in a troubled time. Okay, let's pause there. There's a lot in here, and I'm just going to say out of the bat, off the bat, this is one of the most famous passages in Daniel, and it's one of the most notorious passages in Daniel because throughout history, biblical scholars have not been able to agree on much of what all of this means, but we're just going to break apart just a couple simple things. For starters, he talks about 70 weeks. Now, as you know, a week has seven days. But um, the vast majority of biblical scholars would agree that this is a symbol not of seven days, but it's a set of seven, 70 sets of seven. And the vast majority believe that it's um, a, a week of years. So instead of a set, uh, like a decade, like a set of 10 years, it's a set of seven years. And there's 70 sets of seven years, which if you're doing the math very quickly, as you all know, 490 years. Now he says, in 490 years, he says, a number of things will happen. First of all, um, in 490 years, you will have the, the um, end of sin. Sin will be atoned for. Sin will be paid for and put away. Everlasting righteousness will be established. A new holy place will be built. What's the holy place? That's that inner, inner, inner part of the temple that the presence of God dwelled that no one but the high priest on one day of the year could go in or they'd be struck dead. A new holy place will be established and it says an anointed one will come. Now, 490 years from the date of when Daniel got this prophecy? No, he said from the date when the word went forth that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. Remember, Jerusalem's in ruins. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon had destroyed it. Now the Persians have taken over, but they're still living um, over off into the east in Babylon and Persia. They haven't gone back and rebuilt Jerusalem yet. He says, from the date that decree goes out, it'll be 490 90 years. And also what will happen is a, uh, an anointed one. Now, the Hebrew word for anointed one there is Mashiach, which it's so fun to pronounce the Hebrew, you know, Mashiach. I think we should all say Mashiach together. Okay, let's say it. Ready? Mashiach. See? You know, I like that you really got into the guttural there, the ach. Like, that's the fun part, okay? Mashiach in Hebrew is the Hebrew word that we get our English word Messiah from. So at the end of 490 years, we should be looking for a Messiah. Messiah in Hebrew, which is in this text, is, is Mashiach, but in the ancient Greek, the word is Christos. That's where we get our word for Christ. So this is an important clue. How did the Magi know to be looking for not just a king, but a Christ? They had Daniel 9. The Mashiach, the Christos, the Christ, the Messiah, 
would come. But there's something very interesting that it says about the Messiah. Let me just read you just the next verse, 26. Look at what it says. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. The Mashiach, the Christos, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're saying that this king, this God-man king, who will reign for all of eternity, who will be the promised, long-awaited Mashiach, the long-awaited Christos, the long-awaited Messiah, will be cut off? He'll die? Well, how could he both die and have a reign that never ended? He'd have to come back from the dead. So the Magi had this, but here's what they have in here. Now, again, there's a lot in here, about 62 weeks and one week, and there's all this stuff. That's another sermon for another day, but I just want to look at the macro, 490 years. The Magi knew to look in what kingdom. We talked about in week one. They knew what kingdom to look in, Rome. But they also knew about the time, about how many years to look. I want to do the math with you real quick, and I know that you were not looking forward to doing math at a Christmas service, but... We're going to do it anyway, okay? I want you to do the math with me. In the Old Testament book of Ezra, that's the book when they start going back from Persia back to Jerusalem. Come out of exile. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. They rebuild the temple. There's various decrees that go out from the Persian kings, but there's one in particular that's especially important. It's, uh, Ezra tells us exactly when it was. It was the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And on that year, he not only said, hey, I'm sending you back to rebuild Jerusalem, but anyone of the Jewish people that wants to go back can return. So let's do the math, okay? Where I want you to start with this. Um, Artaxerxes, he began his reign, we know when. Historically, Artaxerxes began his reign in 465 B.C. Ezra tells us in the seventh year of his reign that the edict went out. Okay, so now what we've got is 458 B.C. The edict goes out. Remember, we're counting 490 years from when the word goes forth that Jerusalem's going to be restored. So this is when the edict goes out. People start returning to the promised land to finish restoring Jerusalem. So it goes out in... um, in 458 BC. 490 years later is when? We have 32 AD. Is that when those 70 weeks is? 32 AD? Well, wait, time out. You remember that monk who created that whole timeline of AD and BC? I don't know if you've ever noticed, but he never put in year zero. It goes from 1 BC to 1 AD. So when we calculated back, we just lost a year that we have to add back in So 490 years from when that edict went out is 33 A.D. 33 A.D., apparently, according to Daniel 9, is when sin will be atoned for and put away. Righteousness will be established forever. And a new holy place will be built. Wait, what happened when Jesus was crucified? Oh yeah, the veil was torn to the old holy place in Jerusalem. 
And Jesus became the true temple through whom we connect with the very presence of God. They knew even around the time to look. So what do we have here? Let's pull some of these pieces together. What do we have here? We've got from Daniel, start with Daniel chapter 9. What do we know in Daniel chapter 9? Specifically, they're waiting for a Christ figure. This is why they ask about a Christ when they get to Jerusalem. We know that that has the the word Christos in it. That helps us. But we know specifically this Messiah, what is he going to do? He's going to die. So that makes, that's the only way it makes sense that they would bring him myrrh. Now I want to talk about these, these gifts for a second. They, they brought him gold because he's a king, frankincense because he was God. But they brought him myrrh. Myrrh um, is a resin. You can probably not see this too close, but it's kind of a, like a smoky yellowish orange um, hue. And it was used um, for embalming, like we talked about. For other uses as well, but it's very most memorable for embalming. And the thing about myrrh, it was also used for a medicine, um, and so that you could consume it. And um, what's interesting about myrrh is that myrrh, the, the aroma is kind of like a sweet, it's a pleasing aroma, which is why they would embalm with it. But its flavor, if you, had, if you ate it medicinally, if it was like mixed in with um, something that you drank, the flavor is extremely bitter. The taste is bitter, but the aroma is sweet. They brought this to, to Jesus, um, baby Jesus. Now what's interesting is that Mark tells us that when Jesus was brought up Golgotha, he'd already been beaten within an inch of his life, whipped right before they nail him to the cross. They offer him myrrh to drink, sour, bitter wine, and he refuses it. And they crucify him on the cross. And later they come, when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come to ask for Jesus' body, John tells us that they took down his body and they wrapped him in myrrh. The wise men, the magi, brought him myrrh. Um, Why? Because they knew the significance of what his death would accomplish. And what's fascinating is Jesus' death is both simultaneously the most bitter moment in the history of the universe and the sweetest moment you could possibly imagine. I mean, it's the most bitter moment. I mean, imagine. He's the Messiah, but rejected by humanity. He's the most glorious being ever, and he's mocked. He's sinless, but he takes all the wrath of God on him on the cross. He's the author of life, but he's put to death. It is the most bitter moment you could possibly imagine. No greater tragedy. The almighty, most powerful being 
holding himself back to a cross to allow them to torture him. No greater tragedy could possibly be imagined. It was the most bitter moment in history. He took and tasted the bitter cup of wrath, but he did it so that we wouldn't have to taste its bitterness. And the fragrance of that is the sweetest possible fragrance. What did that accomplish? He put away sin and atoned for it. That means any sin, past, present, or future, is forgiven and put as far away from, from you if you receive Jesus as the east is from the west. Your sin is put away and forgotten by God. He came to establish righteousness forever. He took all of our sin on himself on the cross and he took his perfect sinless righteousness and he gave it to us so that one day anyone who believes in Jesus will stand before God and the, we will come into heaven not because we've tried to be religious and tried to do good and tried to be kind and tried to be generous and tried to pray and tried to go to church. Look, we did the best we can. No, all of that's going to fall short. No, we've been given the perfect righteousness of Christ and he sees us as if we were sinless like Jesus and fully righteous like Jesus. Righteousness is forever. Isn't that good news, church? What did that sacrifice accomplish? It set up a new holy place. Now, you're, you and I, if you know Jesus, you're not kept out of the holy of holies in the presence of God. No, through Jesus, you are welcomed into an intimate, perpetual relationship with Almighty God. He welcomes you into his presence, adopts you into his family. He calls you son and daughter. And he is like, he is your heavenly father. Man, the sweetest possible relationship to be reconciled with almighty God, your father, your creator who knows you and walks with you. See, why did the wise men, why did they go? They, yeah, they saw a crazy thing in the sky, but why did they go? They weren't three kings. They were magi. They weren't three kings, but they were looking for a king. They were looking for a king who would rule to the ends of the earth. That means that their, his rule would rule over them too. His king, he would rule for eternity. But here's what they also knew. Would this super powerful king, would he be good? Would he be like the other Babylonian kings and Persian kings and Greek kings and Roman kings and rulers? Would he be like them, these megalomaniacs who'd think of nothing about killing anyone, even friends and family members and trusted advisors if they were a threat to their rule? They, were, they had blood on their hands. I mean, would he be like one of those kings? No, what they knew about this king is that he would be good. He would come and give his life for the citizens of his kingdom. They knew he was a good king, and I think they came because they were making him their king. They said, we want this, this king as our king. And here, that, that leaves us at the end of our journey with this question. Have you made him your king?
You know, it's one thing to know about Jesus. Yeah, I know about Jesus, you know, sure. It's one thing to, you know, be Christian and religious in that sense. Like, yeah, I grew up in church. I go to church every now and then. You know, I'm watching a church service now. You know, like I'm, I'm Christian by religion. But Jesus is a king. He came to set up an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. And he's, to follow Jesus is to become part of his kingdom and to have Jesus as your king. It's to surrender your life to your king who died for, for you to have forgiveness because you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't be Christian enough, religious enough, fervent enough, kind enough, good enough. You can't to make it to God's, to God's kingdom. You need the work of King Jesus, what the Messiah did on your behalf, dying on the cross and coming back to life. But one of the most Christmassy things you could possibly do is to accept Jesus, not only as your Mashiach, not only as your Christos, as your Messiah, as your Savior, but to accept him as your King. Make him your Lord, your King, and surrender every day of your life to King Jesus. How could you surrender your life to a king rather than ruling over your life? Because this king, he's not imaginary. Jesus is on the throne. He's all-powerful. He is the king of kings. And he's good. He loves you. Make him your king today. I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? I don't know where you're at in your journey or where this Christmas finds you. But honestly, the most significant thing you could do in this moment to affect not just the rest of this Christmas season, not just the rest of your life, but it would affect your eternity is to make Jesus your Messiah, your Savior, to make Jesus your King. If you take that step, that's the only way to be saved. It's by the work of Jesus. So whether you're sitting here at the West Pines campus or at the Cooper City campus or you're watching online, I want to invite you right now to take that step to make Jesus your king. Surrender the, every part of your life to King Jesus. Someone so significant that God arranged the sky to herald his coming. He is the king. He's the rightful king. He's the one that divides all of history. He's the one that changed the, the course of the universe. He is the king of all kings and rightfully your king. Make Jesus your king today. Here's what I want to invite you to do with no one looking around, everyone's head bowed, eyes closed. If that's you and you want to take that step today, then with no one looking around, I want you to take a step and I just want you to lift your hand in the air just for God to say, I want to make Jesus my king. Amen. Anybody else here or watching online at Cooper City, you say, look, I, I want to make Jesus my king today. I want to find salvation. I want to know for sure. Just slip your hand in the air and put it back down. Amen. Amen. 
Grace of God. For those of you who are ready to take that step, let me just lead you in this simple prayer. Just silently say this to King Jesus. Jesus, I give you my life. I believe. I believe you died on the cross so that I could be forgiven of my sin. I believe you rose again and that I too will live forever in heaven with you. I make you my Lord, my Savior, and my King. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, church, there were people here today that put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord, their Savior, their King. Let's celebrate with them. I want you to know, greatest decision you could possibly make. And here's what we want to do. We want to journey with you. If you're watching online and that was your decision, we want to mail you a Bible. So here's what I want you to do. Go to cityrev.org slash faith. We want to mail that Bible to you. So let us know. Go there now on your phone. You can click that on the screen. If you're here and you, and you put your faith in Jesus, just on that Get Connected card, just indicate that you have put your faith in Jesus. You decided to follow Jesus and put that in one of the giving boxes, or you can take that with you to the guest services out in the front lobby. We would love to give you a Bible um, this, this Christmas to celebrate that incredible step that you took. Church, let's end our time together rejoicing in the sweetness of what our King came to do. If there's anything that brings joy to our lives, it's that our sin is washed away, he's given us his righteousness, and our king reigns for all time. Can we celebrate that? Let's stand and sing of that together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.